as we've talked about for, it seems like quite a while, God is making me preach through 1 Corinthians, in a sense. But it's opened up a whole other arena, if you will, in my mind about relationships and who God has called us to be and, and what He wants us to do. And it, it, it's convicted me to the point that if I officiated at your marriage, many of you are probably here, and I, I don't know if I went in depth enough before we got married, before we actually did it. I, I, I don't think we all know what all's entailed when you stand here and with this ring I now they wed. Paul is, is getting in some of the more sticky issues, if you will, of relationships in this passage today that I, I don't know if we realized they were there when we signed on. To be or not to be, that is the question. That's from Shakespeare's Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1. Hamlet himself is speaking. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing in them to die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation. To be or not to be is the most famous soliloquy in the works of Shakespeare, probably even the most famous soliloquy anywhere, that is particularly or partly because the opening words are so interesting, memorable, and intriguing, but also because Shakespeare ranges around several cultures and practices to borrow the language for his images, to bring them to our mind, and because he is dealing with profound concepts. A soliloquy is this, an utterance or discourse by a person who is talking to himself or herself, or is disregardful of or obvious to any hearers present. A soliloquy is a popular literary device often used in drama to reveal the innermost thoughts of a character. A lot of times we'll see cartoons and it'll have a couple or people speaking and up over their head is this bubble with words in it. And these words in this bubble are what is in this person's mind. To be or not to be. It's, it's profound. Uh, to me, profound carries a lot of weight. It's just not a regular word to me. It's like an absolute in a sense. Webster says profound is situated at, extending to, or coming from a great depth, deep. Coming as if from the depths of one's being, thoroughgoing, far-reaching, penetrating beyond what is superficial or obvious. To be or not to be, that is the question. A profound question indeed the Apostle Paul asks such a question in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7. The question that, that Paul poses for all humans to ponder is, do I say single or do I marry? And I think we, we as humans are all faced with this question and we have to decide what we're going to do. It's a profound question that can cause a person to have personal drama, to have that conversation a soliloquy, if you will, sometimes with ourselves, and then also it causes us to ask these questions to other people. There, there's a movie entitled Up in the Air, and we find this very conversation from a groom who has cold feet 
on his wedding day, and George Clooney tries to give him a little advice. Let's listen in. Having some thoughts. I don't think I'm going to be able to, uh, to do this. And why would you say that today? Well, last night I was just kind of like laying in bed and I couldn't get to sleep. So I started thinking about the wedding and the ceremony and, and about how we're buying a house and, and moving in together and having a kid and then having another kid and then Christmas and Thanksgiving and spring break and going to football games. And then all of a sudden they're graduating, they're getting jobs and they're getting married. And, you know, I'm a grandparent and then I'm retired. I'm losing my hair. I'm getting fat. And then the next thing you know, I'm dead. And I'm just like, I can't stop from thinking, what's the point? I mean, what is the point? The point? Yeah, I mean, what am I starting here? Jim, it's marriage. It's one of the most beautiful things on earth. It's what, uh, what people aspire to. Well, you never got married. That's true. You never even tried. Well, it's hard to define try. No. I don't know. I just, you seem happier than all my married friends. Uh, look, Jim, I'm not going to lie to you. Marriage can be a pain. In and you're kind of right. This all is just stuff that leads to your eventual demise. Yes. And we're all on running clocks, and they can't be slowed down or paused. And, you know, we all end up in the same place. There is no point. There is no point. That's what I'm saying. You know, uh, I'm not normally the guy you would talk to about stuff like this. If you think about it, your favorite memories, the most important moments in your life, were you alone? Mm, no, I guess not. You come to think of it, last night, the night before your wedding, when all was swirling around in your head, weren't you guys sleeping in separate bedrooms? Yeah, Julie went back to the apartment, and I was just by myself in the honeymoon suite. Kind of lonely, huh? Yeah, it's pretty lonely. Life's better with company. Yeah. Everybody needs a co-pilot. I say this a lot because it's so true, we as humans, we have all these voices that come at us, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that's then the fourth voice, of course, is the Holy Spirit. So we as followers of Christ, if you have chosen that path in your life, basically we have to go down to see, see what, what God says, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7. I say this a lot as well. Can you imagine the risk that God took when he formed Adam out of the, the dust, the dirt of the, the clay of the ground and made him and breathed life into his nostrils, the, the breath of life, what he breathed into Adam on that day and thus breathed into every other human being, including us, was the power of choice. We, it, it, it's ever before us, every day of our life, we know what the Word of God says, and if we don't, we need to read it. And then we have a choice whether we take it face value, whether we believe that it's really the uh, ultimate Word of God, or do we, we put it aside and live like we want. 
And after we read those words, we have to decide whether we're going to follow them. So this is where we're at in church. We come and we worship and we read God's Word and we, we try to lift it out so we can understand it and apply it in our lives. And Paul gets into this issue of husbands and wives and singleness. And he doesn't let it go. It's been coming. He's interjected the whole issue of sex, which I think we should talk about sex in the church. It's better for our children to hear it in church than it is in a locker room or over in the courthouse square because it's flavored a little different than it comes from the Word of God. Some has raised that issue about I think you should be able to talk about everything in church because it, it's, it's part of our life. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7, Paul says, Now about that question you ask in your letter, yes, it is good to live a celibate life. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should not deprive his wife of sexual intimacy, which is her right as a married woman, nor should the wife deprive her husband. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband also gives authority over his body to his wife. So you do not deprive each other of sexual relations. The only exception to this rule would be the agreement of both husband and wife to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so they can give themselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, they should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt them because of their lack of self-control. There's only... This is only my suggestion. It is not meant to be an absolute rule. I wish everyone could get along without marrying just as I do, but we are not all the same. God gives some the gift of marriage, and to others he gives the gift of singleness. Some have said that Paul was married once, but there's no New Testament evidence to support that. And some say that Paul was against marriage, but he was definitely not. If you read Ephesians chapter 5, 20 through 22 through 33, Paul compares marital love to the love that Christ has for his church. It, it is such an agape, uh, unconditional love that he gave his very lifeblood for it. If a husband was, loves his wife in that manner, I think all these other things hopefully would fall into place. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, Paul declares that the act of forbidding marriage will be a sign of end times apostasy. And in Corinthians 7, 14, he even upholds the sanctity of mixed marriages between believers and unbelievers. Paul is evidently pro-marriage, so we can put that off the table, actually, I do believe. He mentions in this text the ideal lifestyle. He opens 1 Corinthians 7 with the words, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. The Corinthians had issues. And they wrote Paul letters, and he, he has come now, and in these next few chapters, he's addressing all these letters and these issues, that the problems that they were having in the church. Paul is definitely pro-marriage, and I, I want to keep reiterating that fact, because I do believe that is true. He talks about marriage and singleness in these chapters coming up. The issue, Paul responds to the Corinthians' first question, saying, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Many have interpreted this statement that, that means that they think Paul feels that marriage is either wrong or unprofitable. Another group in the church believes that he's encouraging sexual absence within the marriage. And within the context of the church at Corinth, you could find both groups, and they were almost warring faction. He has come to try to set them straight, actually, as the Word of God sets us straight in our lives as well. 
He expresses his wish that all Christians, as he, were unmarried. That, that's his first point, verse 7 and 8. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am, but I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I am. And then he gives the reasons. One reason for staying single is given in verse 26 in the same chapter. I think then that is good in view of the present distress that is good for a man to remain as he is. Present distress was the persecution coming from the empire upon believers, uh, all manner of things. If you want to have your hair raised, Google that sometimes about persecutions of Christians in the first century. It's unbelievable. Paul is saying that would be a burden on your heart and how horrible it would be for them to take your family away and feed them to the lions or burn them for torches in Nero's garden. That's what he's saying. You wouldn't have that, that burden upon you or that hardship, so to speak. And also he talks about the responsibility that we have to espouse. People that are single pretty much come and go and do as they please. They don't really have to answer to anybody. But again... It goes back to this act. When you slide this on this finger, you have brought another person into your life to answer to, to a degree, in a good way. It, it's just not you. It, it's you together. You can't come and go to do what you want. For a good example is if you guys came home on a brand new Harley without telling your wife how you think that'd play. It's just one of those things, or a woman come home with a new car or whatever, but the fact is there's things that you talk about before you do it. You are not totally your own to a degree. And that was, Paul was hitting on that a little bit. And what he was saying, if you are single, you can devote all that time that you might devote to a mate, to God, and look at all, look at the the, the freedom and the time that you have to devote to serving Christ. That is the point. He gives a realistic alternative. He prefers undistracted attention to the Lord over marriage. He realizes that many people need partners to go through night. Not everybody is gifted to go it alone. There's too much sexual immorality. too much temptation out there. So Paul tells him in verse 2, But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. This is not a low counsel of marriage Paul is giving here or opinion. It's important to remember that he is not writing a marriage manual in view of the Corinthians and their lifestyle and what was going on in that culture. He was just trying to answer some of their questions. As one commentary puts it, in a society so full of temptations, he advises marriage, not as the lesser of two evils, but as necessary, a necessary safeguard against evil. So far from marriage being wrong, as some Corinthians were thinking, it was for very many people a duty. So the point is this. If you are single, if you are young, regardless of your age, God has made us sexual beings. He has put that urge within us. If you can't control that, you need to find somebody that will love you, and you need to be married is is the point that he's trying to make here. You have to fulfill your sexual desires within the bounds of marriage. If you try to do that as single and not in the bounds of marriage, it messes up your relationship with God in a huge way. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8, chapter 6, is 15 through 19, and it also messes us up with other believers as well. Paul addresses sexual fulfillment. Some of the Christians in Corinth didn't forbid marriage, but they did prohibit sexual intercourse between husband and wife. 
In response to this wrong thinking, Paul comments in verse 3. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. It's interesting to note here in the Greek, the word term is translated duty, but it, it means actually debt. Jesus and Paul used this word in other contexts when referring to settling a bill with an individual or a government. Matthew 18, 23 through 32 and Romans 13, 7. Paul is saying that spouses are sexually indebted to each other and must regularly pay up. <laughs> what a wonderful bill to pay, huh? I don't advocate a lot, a lot of things in life, but there are certain, certain things that come up that, that got me to thinking about this. There are many married people who in the course of their marriage that sometimes have strayed. It's not right. It's against what God says. It's sin. But if you have a case in a marriage where one spouse stops intimacy, to hold a grudge, to use it as power, whatever, that is sin as well. And I do believe that people have been forced into another's arms because they weren't having their needs met at home. And this is what Paul is trying to guard against. Again? That probably wasn't explained to you <laughs> when this was slipped on. And with this ring I now they wear in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We, and, and, it, it makes me guilty sometimes when I, I, to, to, to try to explain the whole concept of, of what all is entailed in marriage. You do not belong to yourself anymore. When you stand before God and your family and your friends and you exchange those vows, what you're saying is as decrepit as this old body is, Diana Marie, it belongs to you and vice versa. We, we, don't, we don't think about that, but that's what Paul is, is making explicit here. Our God acknowledges the beauty and necessity of sex. Throughout Scripture, the sexual relationship in marriage sparkles with pristine beauty. Proverbs 5, 5, 15 through 19, and the whole Song of Solomon. As Mike Mason points out, this is for good reason, and I quote, this is a great quote. What well, can equal the surprise of finding out that the one thing above all others which mankind has been most enterprising and proficient in dragging through the dirt turns out, in fact, to be the most innocent thing in the world. Is there any activity at all which an adult man and woman may engage in together apart from worship that is actually more childlike, more clean and pure, more natural and wholesome and unequivocally right than in the act of making love? For if worship is the deepest available form of communion with God, and especially that particular act of worship known as communion, then surely sex is the deepest communion that is possible between human beings, and as such is something absolutely essential in more than a biological way to our survival, end of quote. Since sexual intimacy is so essential in marriage, couples need to ensure that their mate's physical needs are met. Paul reminds us again to remind ourselves that our bodies don't belong to us, they belong to our mates, 1 Corinthians 7, 4. Sexual gratification should not be withheld because of Fatigue, apathy, boredom, resentment, and for the like. Husband and wife have authority over each other's bodies. 
When one spouse needs or desires the deepest intimacies of love, the other spouse should delight in filling that request. In verse 5, Paul gives only one exception to that rule, and he gives three provisions for that. Number one is this, abstinence by mutual consent. Verse 5, stop depriving one another except for agreement for a time. They must agree literally in sympathy that sexual relations should cease. Two, abstinence for an important reason. Verse 5, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. A couple should stop making love only when the reason is serious enough to drive them to their knees in prayer. Third provision, abstinence for a brief period. Still verse 5, the last of verse 5, and come together again lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Stopping sexual activity is to be only temporary so that you won't be tempted to meet those physical needs outside the marriage relationship, Proverbs 5. Here's some final guidelines that Paul gives. Paul wraps up his counsel in verse 7. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God. One is this manner and in this manner, and one is that. Some of us are divinely equipped to stay single. Others are suited for marriage. But how can we know the difference? Paul gives some guidelines here. It's better to remain single than one to marry outside the Lord. Choosing a non-Christian partner will always create relational problems far greater than it solves. It's better to remain single than two to marry someone who will hinder our Christian growth. Believers may marry other believers who will hamper their spiritual training because they don't want to grow. They've got to the point in life, they've come into the kingdom, and they've sat down, and they're not using their gifts. They just want to go along for the ride. It's better to remain single than to marry for the wrong motive. Marrying for money, power, prestige, fear of growing old alone or simply because it's expected will inevitably lead to disaster. It's a simple answer, but it's hard to grasp sometimes. The only reason we should get married is because of love. It's better to remain single than to marry without being willing to give ourselves to another completely. Wouldn't you agree with me this morning that we are all selfish to a point? But if we are unwilling to sacrifice our own wants and needs for another every day for the rest of our lives, we shouldn't even entertain the idea of marriage because that's what it involves. You can't imagine how many problems and maybe you do. It's because one partner is a lot more selfish than the other. And there, I say this in marriage premarital counseling sometimes, that I believe in life there are givers and takers, both. And a lot of times in a couple's relationship, one will be more of a giver and one will be more of a taker. The giver can't keep giving and the taker can't keep taking because after a while it wears real thin and it gets to grinding and it causes major problems. There has to be give and take both ways. And that is what Paul is saying. If you are not willing to do that, don't do this. And then he says it's better to marry if, one, our lives would be more complete with a mate. Unhappiness as a single life may be a sign that God has not given you the gift of celibacy, that you need to be married. It's like that sloth said, you complete me in that one cartoon movie. Two, God leads us to someone we love and who loves us. Well, a greater proof that you need 
that you found a life partner. And in three, we are confident that our relationship will illustrate Christ's love for his church. We do not really love enough to marry if our love is not sacrificial like Christ. But if we are willing to give ourselves deeply, we are ready to join with that partner. And then lastly, it's better to marry if, number four, we are willing to spend the remainder of our days giving more than receiving. Living successfully with a partner takes a lot of time and practice. It's like ice skaters spend eight hours a day in the rink with their partners falling and helping each other up and landing hard on the ice before we've got to be willing to support. We've got to be willing to support our marriage partner like that, Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. And only if we are ready to consistently put out this kind of effort should we think seriously about marrying. There's two things in life that will be most difficult for us. The first is living as a follower of Christ, as God has called us to live. And the second is being the spouse that God has called us to be, or if you're single, being the single person that God has called you to be. That's kind of the same, I guess. But the fact is, I, I like that concept of ice skaters falling and getting skinned up You get a lot of bumps and bruises when you're married. (laughs) And out of selfishness and anger sometimes and egocentric thoughts, we say things that, that crush hearts, that sometimes can never be repaired. We do things to each other that we forgive, but the damage is so vast and deep that it'll always be there. And even though we try to heal it, and we, we ask God to, to heal it, and the power of the Holy Spirit, small nagging voice, just when your relationship is really, really good, the enemy comes and whispers again in our ear, do you remember the time? And that's when we have to learn to say, help me, Jesus, about every minute of the day, actually. It's like Billy Graham said a thousand times. My wife never thought about divorce, but murder's a weekly option. (laughs) You may not know whether God has marriage in mind for you if you're single. Maybe that part of his will is still veiled for you. It's in darkness. You don't see it. And maybe he's waiting for just the right time to answer you. If you're in this position this morning, just remember how much of God's will is in your life are you really sure about, and then act on it, as like Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, sanctification meaning being set apart. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Because we are the church. We house the Holy Spirit. The church is not the Sherman House. The church is not some big cathedral, even a synagogue. The church is alive and human and living. It's you. You are the church. The Holy Spirit lives in you, and that was the point that Paul was making. What has God said to you today? I don't know. I'm not the Holy Spirit. And the next question that always follows that, what are you going to do about it? I think it's just as important 
as the first, maybe even more. What's God said to you about your relationships? You're, we're all in different kind of relationships, perhaps. But, and then what are you going to do about it? And I always say this because there are people here that love you that if you need prayed with, that you can come and we will gather with you and, and pray for you. I wouldn't be afraid to say this morning that there are probably relationships in this place that need God's healing touch on, that there are marriages that aren't where they should be. But the point is, for our relationships to be what they should be, it's going to take both of us. One-sided don't work. When people get in trouble in their marriage and they come and see me, that is the point. I asked one spouse, what's your perception of relationship? Where should it be? And then I asked the other one, I said, what, how are you going to get, what are you going to do to get in the middle? Here's the things you have to do, and it's, it, and it's both of us. The tragedy is when one's a, more of a finger pointer and puts, try to put the blame on the other one. But it's all of us. We're all, we're all at fault to a degree. Lord, I love these people. You know their hearts. You know what's going on in all the relationships. And as I always pray, Lord, that you might bring healing. The, we might try to see it your way. Our way don't work. Man, I, I'd say we could be here till the end of time all telling stories when we've made wrong choices. And it just, just, did, it just didn't work out. But Father, your choice is always the right choice, even though it hurts, even though we have to change, even though we might have to say and do things we really don't want to do, it's the right way. So right now, Father, I pray for all the single people in this place this morning that they might take your word to heart, that they might follow Paul's instruction, whatever that might be. And I pray for all these married people, Father, that have that responsibility to look out for each other. And some of them have small children, and that tremendous responsibility you've put on them to raise those kids in a God-honoring home. If there's healing that needs to take place there, I pray that healing into these marriages right now. Thanks, God, for loving us. Just give you praise and glory for who you are. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.